was denying it. So Greg was saying the Bible does not teach it is possible for a true Christian to lose their salvation. Could you see that on screen? Yes. Yes, I see it. All right. So, so, so basically, it's the once saved, always saved doctrine or perseverance of the saints. And um, it, was, it was an interesting debate. There were, there were uh, three speeches followed by three speeches. The first three spe- speeches were 20 minutes each. And uh, maybe we'll just walk through a little bit. The first speech, Pat Donahue got up and he argued the Bible teaches it's possible to lose your salvation. And he went through a list of passages. I'll just read off a list of passages. This may not be all that he mentioned, but then we can talk about three or four or five of them. Uh, he talked about Galatians 5.4, Hebrews 3.12, Hebrews 10.26 and following, James 5.19.20, 2 Peter 2.22, Revelation 3.5, Romans 14.15, Romans 14.23, 1 Corinthians 8.11, 2 Corinthians 15.2, uh, and, and some others that I think I didn't get written down. Uh, so let's just take, uh, I don't know, three, four, five of those that would illustrate the point, what the Bible teaches about that. What do you think? Okay, Galatians 5, 4, Paul writing to the Galatians after they'd uh, switched over to the Judaizers' doctrine. Paul writes, ye are severed from Christ, you who would be justified by the law, ye are fallen from grace. And then he says in verse uh, 6 or verse 5, For we through uh, the Spirit by faith wait for the hope of righteousness. For in Christ Jesus neither circumcision availeth anything nor uncircumcision, but faith working through love. And then he says, uh, You were running well, hindered you that you should not obey the truth. And I forgot verse 2. Behold, I, Paul, do you say to you that if you receive circumcision, Christ will profit you nothing. And Pat really sat on that. Christ will profit you nothing, and you're, you're fallen from grace and severed from Christ. And, of course, he's making the point. This is talking about the possibility of losing your salvation. What's another one you guys want to talk about? Yeah, then in Hebrews 10, um, the Hebrew writer gets pretty graphic, actually, in, in chapter 10 of what exactly is happening whenever a, a Christian goes on sinning in verse 26. Uh, he starts off by saying, if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. And he goes on and he talks about um, what, what the penalty under the old law was uh, in verse 28. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. How much worse punishment do you think will be deserved for the one who has trampled underfoot the son of God has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has outraged the spirit of grace. So, I mean, he's, it seems pretty straightforward. If, if you have been saved by this blood of the covenant, which we know is Jesus's blood, which, which the author spent chapters talking about how the blood of bulls and goats can't take away sins. Only Christ's blood can do that. Um, if you continue sinning, after receiving that knowledge, then that, that sacrifice does nothing for you, which, in other words, you're lost in your sins. Yeah, that seems pretty clear. Uh, also, also, there it says it's, it's worse than the punishment in the, under the old covenant of being put to death, and it identifies the judgment coming. Uh, if we sin willfully after we receive knowledge of the truth, verse 27, what remains is a certain fearful expectation of judgment and a fierceness of fire which shall devour the adversaries. 
and also then uh, let me just add another one into the mix. The James was it James uh, five? Yeah, James mm -hmm. five nineteen and twenty. Yep. James says, "My brothers, if anyone among you wander," and he's speaking to who? Christians. My brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth, means they had it, and someone brings them back, which means he left. Let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. Uh, the, the three passages that were brought up so far, um, gee, that kind of makes it clear to me. Unless I'm missing something here, Jeff, what, what's the argument? Yeah, well, it, it really was. And so, you know, we've taken just a moment to look at three of these, but I read the list off of most of the passages uh, Pat dealt with in the first 20 minutes of the debate. So then Greg Strawbridge, who is the Presbyterian and who believes that you, a true Christian cannot lose his salvation, he got up and you might think, well, he's got his work cut out from him. He's got to go through all these passages and show why they don't mean what they look like they mean. And he didn't talk about a one of them. He got up and he said, uh, you know, uh, Pat's kind of taken a, 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 he said, uh, well, the first thing he said is, he quoted the Heidelberg Confession, the Heidelberg Catechism, which is a document from the 1500s uh, out of Germany that is used by many Calvinist churches to teach their doctrine. And he quoted from that, and he talked about Reformed Covenant theology. And he said, you know, uh, this floor that we're standing on, we can see the floor, but under the floor there's a structure that, that you know, supports it. And, uh, and that's the important part. And he said, Pat's just gone through and listed a bunch of passages, but we need to understand what's under those passages, what's behind it. And to understand that, you need to understand covenant theology and the Reformed doctrine. And uh, then he said, Pat's gone through and, and you know mentioned all these passages, but it's like taking a shotgun loaded with BBs, and he's fired all these BBs at me, and um, I don't have time to talk about all those passages. So I just want you to understand uh, something about covenant theology. And then he went on, basically his concept of covenant theology is there are various covenants God makes with people in the Bible. Uh, he had a covenant with the Old Testament nation of Israel. Um, and there were blessings and cursings under that covenant. Uh, if you obey, then there are blessings. If you disobey, there are cursings. It doesn't necessarily mean those people are saved just because they get the blessings of the covenant. Uh, not all the Israelites were saved. So he said there's the stuff that has to do with the covenant, and then there's stuff that has to do with eternity. And all the passages that Pat is talking about, he said, have nothing to do with your eternal salvation. They're just about blessings and cursings under the covenant. And that was his 20-minute speech. So Pat cited a bunch of biblical texts. Yeah. And then Greg said he didn't have time to look at all of them. Did he look at any of them? Not in that first speech, not a one of them. <laughs> not a one of them. So as the debate went on, Pat got up for his second speech, and he went through more passages, and, got Pat, and then Greg got up for his second speech, the Calvinist, and he again talked about Reformed theology and covenant theology. So when Pat got up for his third speech, he said, Greg, I understand your point about all these BBs coming at you and you, you don't have time to answer them all. So how about you just take four of them and Fair. see if you can talk Fair. about just four. 
And if I remember right, the four that Pat mentioned were Galatians 5, 4, um, Hebrews 3, 12, uh, Revelation 3, 5, and I'm um, not sure which the other one was. Just maybe Second Chronicles 15, 2. I'm not sure. He didn't pick the ones I would have picked, but he picked four of them. So after that, Greg got up, and he went back to his reform, Reformed um, theology. And then he talked a little bit about two passages. Uh, he talked a little bit about Hebrews 10 and Hebrews 6. Pat hadn't even brought up Hebrews 6. Hebrews 10 was not one of the four passages. Pat asked him to focus on this. But he talked about those passages a little bit. And then he talked about his trip to Kentucky. He had 10 minutes in which he could have addressed at least one of them. After nine and a half minutes with 30 seconds to go, he threw up the four passages on screen that Pat had asked him to talk about and said, well, really, this is just the blessings and cursings under the covenant. You know, when politicians are asked questions, a general rule in politics is what? Ignore the question and go to your talking points. That's right. That's what he did. That's right, what he but did. I want to get back to that talking point because I'm, I'm, I'm having a hard time understanding what is the covenant that, what does he mean by the covenant? So he, he believes that there is a covenant with Christians, with the New Testament church, that's analogous to the covenant that God had with Israel, and that it's the visible church. It's not all the saved. It's just those who are outwardly appear to be saved, and that you can disobey God's commands, and you may get punished under the cursings of the covenant, or you and, and if so, you're, you're lost, but you were never really saved to begin with. You were just part of the covenant people, but you never really were saved. You were just part of the visible church, but you weren't really part of Christ's church. You were not part of the regenerate. But if you are truly part of the regenerate, those passages don't apply to you. Uh, you cannot lose your salvation. Is there any scripture that supports this dual role? Because I'm getting a sense there's a dual role. There's a covenant, but you're not saved necessarily under the covenant. Well, certainly in the Old Testament, you know, God had a covenant with Israel, and, and uh, you're going to get the land. And not everybody that went into the land is necessarily going to have eternal life. Um, maybe some people who didn't get to go into the land, maybe they will have eternal life. I believe Moses will have eternal life, but he didn't get to go into the land. So there were people under the covenant there who suffered punishments and whatnot, but didn't really have, didn't, there was not a one-to-one -one correspondence between um, their, what happened to them under the covenant and their eternal salvation. So he says that's the same way it is with Christians. But wait a minute. What he's describing is just the floor. There's some structure under there, and I think the structure might be, you break my covenant, I'm cutting you off. <laughs> yeah. So, um, in, in then um, in, in the, um, oh, there's two things I got in my head. Which, which way do I want to go? Uh, to, well, tonight, the debate's going to be about infant baptism. And what he's going to argue tonight, and, and I could see it coming after hearing him last night, but also went online and looked where he's dealt with it before, and I see what he argues. Infant baptism is like circumcision in the Old Testament. Um, you become a part of the covenant people. That, that doesn't necessarily mean you're saved. Um, the Those who are going to end up 
falling away or an appearance fall away, they never were saved in the first place. But then, then you can have infant baptism because you're not necessarily getting saved when you're baptized as an infant. You're just becoming a part of the outward church, the, um, the covenant. So. Let's take a look at Hebrews 10, because it occurs to me that the middle of the chapter responds to one point, and the, toward the end of the chapter, it responds to the other one. So let's note that, yes, in the Old Testament, there was a covenant with a large group of people. Most of them were not right with God. Yeah. Uh, Isaiah said, even if Israel is it's the sand of the sea, it is the remnant, remnant that will be saved. And so in, in Hebrews 10, verse 15, this is the 10th chapter of Hebrews, verse 15, the Hebrew writer is going to be quoting Jeremiah 31, that famous passage where Jeremiah says, there's going to be a new covenant. Uh, Jeremiah uh, conveys God's message that there will be a new covenant. Mm-hmm. Verse 15, the Holy Spirit also bearing witness to us, for after he said, this is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, says the Lord. And and in the text, he had earlier said, quoted in Hebrews 8, I'm going to make a new covenant. Mm -hmm. Notice what the new covenant will be like. I will put my laws on their heart. I will put them in their mind. Verse 17, their sins and their iniquities, I will remember no more. And actually jump back to chapter 8, because that's where the fuller quote is. And and in verse 11, uh, after saying, I will be their God, and they will be my people, they will not teach every man his fellow citizen, and every man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for all shall know me. So let's think of for a minute. If we're in Israel, say, during the time of uh, Manasseh, Mm -hmm. or just about the judges, just about any time, Israelite, 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 Israelite. How many of us are part of the covenant people? Maybe one. Yeah, maybe, maybe one. Um, How many of the generation in the wilderness made this? Two. Mm -hmm. So maybe one, but we're all... Under the covenant. Under the covenant. We're all part of his people. You're going to be my people, and I'll make this covenant with you. The, the, The generation in the wilderness. I make this covenant... I'll be your God, you be my people. And what did they say? Okay, mm-hmm. but they're not faithful. Right. Joshua and Caleb are faithful. Now, Jeremiah says there's going to be a new covenant, not like the old covenant. Right. There's right. going to be a new covenant, and you won't have to teach your fellow citizen to know God. Right. Well, that's not talking about the whole world. My fellow citizen may be an atheist. My fellow citizen may be a Muslim. My fellow citizen may be an agnostic, but within the king, within within the covenant, but within the covenant, within the kingdom of Christ, the only people that are in that kingdom are people that chose to be there because they accept that Jesus is the Lord. Confess with their mouth that Jesus is the Lord. So whereby we can help each other, encourage each other, sometimes correct each other. We don't have to say, Drew. Jeff, Jonathan, you don't know that Jesus is the Lord. Well, no, you do know that because that's, that's why you became a Christian, because you knew that. And so this, this is a difference in the covenant. And then in Hebrews 10, as to whether or not this is talking about people, well, you were in the covenant, but they were never saved. Let's read that text. 
Verse 26, if we sin willfully after we receive the knowledge of the truth, there remains no more sacrifice for sin, but this judgment of fire. And it says, contrasting back under Moses, if you broke that, you could be put to death. Yeah. Verse 29, of how much sore punishment think ye shall he be judged worthy who has trodden underfoot the Son of God, and what does it say next? Counted the blood of the covenant wherewith he was sanctified an unholy thing. I'm quoting it. I'm not looking at it. Yeah. Fast tense. The blood of the covenant wherewith he was sanctified. Sanctified. So what? Not somebody not in a relationship with God. These are people that had been sanctified through the blood of Christ. Okay, now drive, drive this point home, though. What Greg did with that, when he finally got around to talking about this passage, what he did with that was he said, well, you see, it says covenant. So this is just talking about covenant stuff. It's not talking about eternal salvation. And so, sure, this is somebody who's suffering blessings and cursings under the covenant. And if he's cursed, he wasn't even saved to begin with. He ignored, well, I'll just, I'll let you deal with it. That's what he said. So verse 26, if we, if we, in the Hebrew writer writing to the Hebrew saints, if we sin willfully after we have received the knowledge of the truth, there remains no more a sacrifice for sin. Not that you may have some temporal punishment. Not that something might not go your way. You've got no more sacrifice for sin. What do you have? Verse 27, a certain fearful expectation of judgment and a fierceness of fire which will devour the adversaries. And so speaking for Greg, he would say, yep, those people are lost. They never were saved to begin with. It only speaks of them as, as participants in the blessings and cursings of the covenant. And yet, he goes on to say, because you deserve this punishment because you trampled underfoot the Son of God and his blood, which you had been sanctified by. This sounds like the definition of a flip-flop. It was. It was stunning at one point when he suddenly said, I believe, referring to these various passages, when he said, I believe those people are going to be lost. And Pat looked at me and said, he just, he just conceded the debate. And then we realized, no, he, he is saying these people never were saved, even though it's, it sure sounds like they were, but in his mind, because it says something about the covenant, it's just talking about covenant theology, and that's just the relationship that God has with people who are not necessarily his people. They're just people under a covenant. So, so Jeff, he started. He, he's taking his position from some kind of theology. I forgot what you called it. Covenant theology as a subset of Reformed theology. Okay, so if he's already got that worldview, he's got to make the scriptures fit the worldview. That's exactly he's gonna, right. He's going to discount what it, the truth is being said about. It, it was so painfully obvious. His doctrine was not coming from what he read in the Bible. Regardless of what the Bible said, he was going to start with his covenant theology. In fact, what he, he, he dismissed Pat's whole first speech saying, well, Pat's just reading a bunch of scriptures. We have to understand what's behind those scriptures. And then he went ahead to explain what's behind those scriptures is covenant theology and reformed theology. And, and so his argument is not coming from the Bible itself. It's coming from his theology. So, Jeff, you, you don't take the position, one saved, always saved. 
No, no. And where do you get your theology from? Well, I look at what the Bible says. And what's interesting is Greg used to, when it comes to infant baptism, Greg used to be a Baptist. And he used to believe that it was inappropriate to baptize babies because, as the Baptists argue, and as Scott argued a moment ago, the new covenant is different than the old covenant. Under the new covenant, to put it in, to use the vocabulary, the jargon of the Calvinists, all the regener- the the uh, the church, the new covenant is just made up of regenerate, or we would say saved people, and so um, so you wouldn't baptize babies, uh, you would only baptize people who are being saved from their sins, and uh, he says he changed his mind when he got to looking at that, and he realized that um, how did it go? He realized that you had people, he realized then that you would end up having these passages that would make it look like you could be lost because it's talking about people who are under the new covenant and they're part of the church, but it looks like it's saying they could be lost. And so he had to change his mind and say, oh, so the new covenant is not only regenerate people, it's also the unregenerate people, uh, the outwardly church-going people who are not really saved, and so that's when he bought into this Reformed theology. But but what it was, he was starting with the premise, you cannot lose your salvation. That's my point. You have to, once you make up your decision in your mind, you're deciding a theology you're going to accept, Mm -hmm. you can't throw the book out, so you have to make the book fit your theology. Or you can also start looking at a different book. There you go. (laughs) In the first uh, presentation, Pat referred to the Bible after scripture, after scripture, after scripture. Mm -hmm. Greg got up and said he didn't have time to look at all of those scriptures. And so he didn't look at one of them. He didn't examine them. But the first quote he gave was from the Heidelberg Catechism. Right there it is. I'll Written in 1563. That's what he quoted from. Yeah. Uh, use in teaching uh, Reformed Christian doctrine. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so and this is really a bigger problem than just this single debate last night. It is. Yep. Because how often have we run into a conversation? And, and uh, I'm sure... In fact, this might have even been stated at the beginning of the debate. Did both uh, fellows were coming from the standpoint that the Bible is the Word of God, correct? Uh, They would both say that, yes. I don't remember if it was stated at the beginning or not, but they would both say that. And yet when Pat went to Scripture, Greg first went to the Heidelberg Confession. Catechism. How many times, or catechism, think how many times you've been in a religious discussion and the person verbally acknowledged the Bible as the Holy Scripture, the Word of God, but then in the discussion, when you refer to the Bible, they keep referring to something else. Right. Right. Give some examples of where you all have seen that in other conversations. I was in a conversation uh, with Jehovah's Witnesses having a study in my, my home a number of years ago, and they every time we went to the Scriptures, they just put that aside and opened up the watch. It was the Watchtower uh, Book, yeah. I forget what they called it. And I said, well, why are you reading that? And he says, because this helps us understand the scripture. And then that's when I said, 
well, hold on a second. Let me go get my old Catholic catechism. That'll help us too. <laughs> yeah. So I sat down with a Catholic priest one time, and I was young and somewhat naive, and I thought, this guy's really a highly educated theologian type. Surely he can answer all these questions. You call yourself father. You want people to call you father. Jesus said, call no man on earth your father, you know, in a context talking about religious titles. I said, I'm sure you must have an explanation for that. And he said, oh, you don't understand. Yeah. We don't just go by the Bible. If we find it in our tradition, then that's good enough. <laughs> so, you know, people talk about how all the religious confusion in the world, and people will say, well, with so much religious confusion, who knows what the Bible means? The Bible's so hard to understand. The problem isn't really the Bible being so hard to understand when we're talking about people who go, the Heidelberg Catechism says, our tradition says, the Watchtower says, the, the problem isn't that the Bible's confusing. The problem is people aren't starting with the Bible. Let me give an illustration uh, of both the Catholic viewpoint and the Jehovah's Witness viewpoint. So I had a tract from the Knights of Columbus, Catholic organization, and it was about purgatory. And it was defending purgatory. And it said that the doctrine of purgatory is really not so much in Scripture itself, but in tradition. Uh, and there's a famous statement from in the early years of the Jehovah's Witness organization where they said, I believe it was, my, it was one of the early leaders, and he said, we have found that if our people read studies in Scripture, now those were some documents printed by the Watchtower organization back around the time of World War I or a little before. He said, if our people read studies in Scripture— even if they don't read the Bible, after a few years, they will be in the light. But if they read just the Bible and they don't use studies in Scripture, they'll go off into the darkness. Jonathan. Um, yes, similar, similar to this uh, idea. I was uh, studying with uh, a couple of um, Mormon elders, um, and uh, they were telling me that they, it was interesting. They gave me a Book of Mormon. Um, at the beginning to read and pray over, but they also had these pamphlets that were extremely necessary to understand what the church was all about and, and that type of thing. And I was reading through one of the pamphlets and it was saying that the the church, one of the purposes of the church was to uh, consecrate special, special relationships. And one of those was marriage to make that an eternal bond. And the church had the authority to eternally bond a couple in marriage. Um, and I asked them if they believed that if, if you're married forever and they said, yeah, the, the church can do that. And I said, well, what about when Jesus said that you can't, <laughs> that, that that's not true, that you're not married forever. And they said, what are you talking about? And so I showed them Mark 12 and we read Mark in Mark 12, where Jesus is having the conversation with the Sadducees, um, who don't believe in the resurrection anyway. Um, but they come up with the, the crazy scenario that this woman is married to seven men and they ask who is she going to be married to in the resurrection? And Jesus says, you don't understand scriptures. First thing, when you're raised, you're not going to be married to anyone. That's Mark 12, uh, what verse is it? Uh, Mark 12, verse 25. For when they rise from the dead, they're neither, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. And, and I said, well, Jesus doesn't seem to believe what your pamphlet says. And they just kind of looked at it and then said, yeah, but the church has the authority to consecrate. And, and I don't, 
different different interactions like that it didn't just doesn't make sense that blatant things that are in pamphlets or books or other things that are totally opposite of what the bible says and totally opposite of what jesus was saying uh, in that instance it just let, let, let me interject here. Uh, a lot of people download this program on their podcast. Probably about a thousand people a month download this, and we want to invite everyone to download and listen to our podcast. We want to make it clear that we're not beating up or picking on any particular uh, denominational religion. What we're looking at is why is it that they go to the theology of a particular man-made conceived document, like you were saying, Scott, they'll go to another book, rather than just the scriptures, because as Jeb, you were saying, the scriptures are really not that confusing. They're not confusing at all. It's when mankind enters <coughs> his opinions, his thoughts, his theology, and how many different theologies are there out there, guys? Oh, Thousands. So that's going to sound like there's confusion coming out of the Bible, but this confusion is in man's concept of God. Now, to be sure, I mean, to be sure, there are some things that confuse me in the Bible. There are some things that are difficult to understand. Peter talked about even uh, some of Paul's writings are hard to be understood, which the right. ignorant and unsteadfast rest to their own destruction. Um, so, granted, there are some things that are difficult. There are some things that are difficult in a cookbook. There are some things that are difficult to understand in a math textbook. There are some things that are difficult to understand in putting your your, your BC, I guess we're way past VCRs, aren't we? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. But we want to understand it. We sit down with it and we go carefully through it. We we start at the beginning and we we learn okay the context and and we figure it out and we understand it. And certainly the Bible can be understood. And even if there are a few things that I may never understand about the Bible, I can understand what God wants me to do and how I can be saved. But when people say, they just throw up their hands and they, they don't even know if Jesus is the son of God. They don't even know if, if Jesus was raised from the dead. You, who knows? They say the Bible's all uh, hard to understand. We, it's not. It's, it's, it, it's, you you got to put some work into it like anything else. But it is comprehensible, and the confusion that's in the world is not because the Bible's hard to understand. The confusion is because people aren't starting with the Bible. Break down in that passage there in Second Peter 3, it said the people that twist it do so for one of two reasons that it lists there. Go back to what those two reasons were, and I want you all to break that down and give some examples of it. Give and that we, reference again. Second Peter 3. Yeah. Start verse 15. Verse 15. Account, yeah. account. 240, I want to give an illustration, but let, let's do this first. So, uh, Jeff, read that text, and then I want you all to break. give an example of how somebody could misunderstand due to being unlearned, and give an example of how somebody will misunderstand by being unstable. All okay. right. Account that the long-suffering of our Lord is salvation. And even as our beloved brother Paul also, according to the wisdom given to him, wrote unto you, as also in all his epistles, speaking in them of these things, wherein are some things hard to be understood, which the ignorant and unsteadfast rest, as they do also the other scriptures unto their own destruction. It's interesting, by the way, the ignorant and the unsteadfast don't only rest, um, twist up the, the things that are maybe hard to be understood in some cases. 
they twist them all. <laughs> oh, yeah. And so how can a person twist scripture by being ignorant or unlearned? Give an example of that. Uh, well, you know, Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 4, verse 13 and following, I would not have you ignorant, brethren, uh, that you need not sorrow even as the rest. He's talking about those who are, who've already died and um, how, are they going to miss out on the Lord's coming? And Paul says, no, they'll be raised. And he doesn't want people to be ignorant. But if I'm just ignorant, I might go, well, if Jesus is coming back the same way that he left in Acts 1-9, coming back in the clouds, and I've already died, then I won't be able to go to heaven. That's just my ignorance. So if we don't study, if we don't read, we're going to be ignorant. And if you, you know, if I pick up, if I decide to rewire my house, and I pick up a manual on electricity. I read the first paragraph. Am I ready to rewire my house? No. no. <laughs> I, might, I might jump to some assumptions. and you might jump for sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I might end up jumping. Now, but there's other people that know the Bible quite well as far as they know what this text is. They, know what, they may know Hebrew. They may know Greek. And yet they're constantly twisting the scripture by being unstable. So I'm sitting in front of a table right now. It's a stable table because it's got four legs and they're all even and it's on a flat floor. If I put one leg on, uh, or, or let's use just a human being. If we put our feet on the word of God, you know, what are we, are we on the sand or on the solid rock? You're on the rock. If you're on the word of God, you're on the rock. Yeah. Now, if I try to stand with one foot here and one foot on a rolling basketball, how stable am I? Oh, you're going to fall. Right, right. And so if I put one foot on the word of God and one foot in the words of some creed writer or something, I'm going to be unstable. John? Maybe maybe a good example of this that that happens, that I've seen happen a lot um, in our culture today. People can read the Bible, and I think it's very clear um, in scriptures that um, any kind of sexual sin is wrong and, and is an abomination in God's eyes. Um, that includes fornication, adultery, um, and homosexuality, any other uh, perversion of, of the sexual relationship. Um, and you can preach that, and I've seen people preach that, that sexual immorality. Uh-oh. What happened to Jonathan? He was about to make a really good point. Say that again, Jonathan, because you broke up. I don't know where where did I, where did I stop at? You were talking about people Stop. reading what the Bible says about sexual immorality, but yeah, but then um, we'll say their child or something is engaging in some yeah. form of sexual immorality, and now that they have a homosexually active child, uh, maybe the Bible isn't really saying that homosexuality is a sin. So this um, this. There's an example of this in, in First and Second Timothy where you have people who are religious teachers, uh, but they're also putting a lot of stock in endless genealogies and fables, basically Gnostic doctrine. And uh, some of them are named Hymenaeus and Alexander, Hymenaeus and Philetus, same Hymenaeus, I suppose. And they're saying the resurrection is past already and overthrowing the faith of some. They're unstable because they're not just putting their confidence in the Word of God. They're also going off into these tangents about things that they're imagining uh, that is not from the word of God. Yeah. And so if we're unstable, and and the thing is, whenever, like in Catholicism, where I've got a 
catechism that says the it's church tradition, sacred tradition, is equal to the Word of God. Yeah. Well, it's not. You can go to Mark 7 and see what Jesus said about oral tradition. But what almost always happens when people said, oh, yeah, the Bible is the Word of God, but this is also. Okay, you've already got a problem when you're going to something uh, over here, just written by a man today, and saying it's equal, or some traditions passed down through the Middle Ages. What almost always happens in reality? They end up relying on not the Bible. They end up relying on this other thing. Yeah, Drew. Well, well, Jeff, uh, Scott, rather, it's not equal. I was told also, just like Jeff was, tradition is above. It's not equal. The Bible is below on the scale of authority than tradition. So here's the illustration that I wanted to share. So let's suppose back late 1800s, or we'll make it early 1900s so we can get some Jehovah's Witnesses in there too. Um, there's a little town out west. Maybe they've discovered gold or, or a silver mine or something, and a little boom town pops up. They've got a couple of banks. They've got a couple of hotels, uh, various things, some hardware stores, a couple of blacksmiths. People are pouring in, and they realize, oh, we don't have any churches. And they put an ad back east and out to the west, and they say, we would like you know, some people to come out here and, and help us start a church for our community. So a number of clergy, not a biblical term, but for the purpose of the story, get on a train and they're headed to this little town. So there's a Catholic priest. Is the Catholic priest going to have a Bible with him? Most likely. This sounds like a joke, a Catholic priest, a rabbi, and a soldier. Is that all he's going to have with him? No, no. No, he's going to have uh, his doctrinal books and catechisms from the Catholic Church that are going to include various aspects of his sacred tradition that he's going to go by. A Methodist preacher gets on the train. Is he going to have a Bible with him? Probably so, but he's also going to have a Methodist discipline. Yes, that has the rules of the Methodist Church and, for instance, says that the doctrine of salvation by justification by faith only is the most wholesome doctrine and full of great comfort. Right. Well, Paul never said faith only. James said faith only when he said we're not justified by faith only. Um, the, the Jehovah's Witness fellow, is he going to have a Bible? What year are we? Early 1900s. Uh, he'll have a Bible. I'm not sure he's a Jehovah's Witness yet. Is he a Jehovah's Witness yet? There, the studies in scriptures are early 1900s. Okay, so he'll have studies in scriptures with him, which yeah. is another publication besides the Bible. Yeah, yeah. That's why I moved it past late 1800s so we could squeeze him in there. So he's going to have studies of scripture. I've got some copies of it from like the 1940s. Okay. There we go. There we go. All right. And uh, is, uh, there, there's a Mormon on the train, some Mormon elders. Are they going to have a Bible? They'll have that plus the Book of Mormon. Yes, plus the Book of Mormon. And we could go on and on. Maybe even that book. There we go. All right. So when they get there, they set up some booths or they start building some buildings. And if you want to be a Methodist, are you going to go to the, are you going to learn how to be a Methodist from the Mormon? No, no. From the, the Methodist, the Mormons don't have the Methodist discipline, so you won't learn. If you want to be a Methodist, you need to go to the Methodist preacher and follow the rules in the Methodist discipline. 
Uh, if you want to be a Jehovah's Witness, is it going to work to go to the Catholic booth? Not at all. No, they don't have the studies and the scriptures and the Watchtower publications and all that. All right, right. So if you want to be a Catholic, only the Catholic priest has the Roman Catholic rules. Right. Uh, and, and so on. What if some people in town said, you know, only that guy is using the Catholic books. Nobody else says that's the word of God. Only that guy is using the studies in scripture. Nobody else, the rest of them say that's not the word of God. Only that guy is using the Book of Mormon. But they're all agreeing that the Bible is the word of God. And some people decide, I think we'll just follow what the Bible says. Wow. Now, oh, you, you might end up with a Christian then. So if you listen to the Catholic priest and all the rules of Catholicism, you're going to end up being a Catholic. If you listen to the Jehovah's Witness guy and read the rules and doctrines of the Watchtower Society, you're going to be a Jehovah's Witness. If you follow the rules of the Methodist uh, discipline, you're going to be a Methodist. But what if you just followed <coughs> Christ and the Bible? You would be a Christian. There you go. Yeah. And, and it was abundantly clear, not only in the debate itself last night, but in the question and answer session, the people who were believing once saved, always saved, they were starting with the premise uh, that if, if um, that you cannot have to do anything to be saved, because if you did, you would never be saved. And so then they were interpreting everything in the Bible <coughs> on that presupposition. So they'd come with that theology, if you please, in mind. And if you start off in an unstable position, yeah. Don't be surprised if you end up needing to tweet. So, so uh, Scott, your 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 illustration there is a great segue to a course that uh, I'll be teaching in the fall on the kingdom of God, which goes and looks at the historical facts and documentation and how we ended up with. Now, you mentioned what a handful of denominations, but uh, last count. There's anywhere between 9,000 and 30,000 denominations that wear the name Christian within them. And the question is, why and where? How do they all come about? So this course that's coming up uh, will, will be offered to free online, so anyone listening, all you have to do is go to, well, if you go to christiansandhonesdale.com, you can click on the Bible Studies tab, and you'll see the courses listed there, and just... Let me know you're interested, and we'll we'll send you an invitation to sign. But I, I wanted you to take that advantage because that is a very uh, uh, top, big topic that I'm we're fa we all face the topic. There's so many denominations, and just people are just claiming the Bible's confusing, uh, confusing, but in reality, it's the doctrines of men that are confusing. I hope you don't mind. I didn't mention this. Oh guy. yeah, I appreciate appreciate that. Yeah. And uh, let me also just real quickly share this. If somebody wants to look in detail a little bit more at Once Saved, Always Saved, uh, if you'll go online to uh, YouTube and find, well, it was there and now it's not. But if you'll go online to YouTube and type in three-minute Bible study, Once Saved, Always Saved, oh, there it is. Can you see that? Not yet. Not yet. Oh, it's not there? I don't, oh, see, well. your, I don't see your screen. There it is. Can you see that now? Nope. Nope. I see you. Oh, well, never mind. I'm wasting yeah, time. Maybe I can get up here real quick. I had it up earlier today, actually. Go ahead. Okay. We're a little bit past time, but take, yeah, the, we're, we're, take uh, the minute. Take the minute. Go ahead. Do it. 
Keep it and share. And now the people on the podcast aren't going to be able to see that screen. So what's the name of the, the site, Scott? Well, Jeff is uh, bringing that up. Just go to YouTube and type in three-minute Bible study, and then once saved, always saved. All right, so anybody coming in on the podcast, if you did that, you'll be able to go and see that yeah. Bible study. Yeah. Are you going to load that, Jeff, or you're not able to? Right there. There you go. There you go. Well, that's not going to tell you much, but three-minute Bible study will get it. YouTube, three-minute Bible study. Okay, so with that note, we are going to end the broadcast today, the webcast today. Thank you guys for your input and comments. And we didn't get any comments from the audience. I really would like to hear from the audience. If anyone's listening to the podcast and you have a disagreement with what we're saying or what you're hearing here, please comment back. Go to BibleQuest.tv, click on the form. It's on that page and let us know what your comments and questions are guys thank you very much and we'll look forward to seeing all of you next week take care bye-bye